Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live or via Zoom, please email me and let me know. We can get you plugged in, get you the link for that, or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks and praise for this opportunity to be together. We thank you for this chance to dive into your word. We just pray, Lord, any distractions or worries or anxieties would just be removed from our hearts and minds so that we can be fully able to receive whatever you have in store for us. We pray for those who could not be with us tonight, as well as those who are still on their way, and that you would bless them and all of us gathered here in the ways that we most need it. Help us to be attentive to your voice and your word tonight, and guide us each in the ways that we need. Help us to be prepared to receive whatever unique message you have in store for us, because you knew each one of us would be here tonight. So we pray, Lord, that this reading of your word would spark questions, would spark inspiration, would give us comfort and peace, and provide answers for the questions that we have or direction for the ways in which we are discerning. We pray that you would just guide this time and we lay it at your feet, asking that your will be done. We pray all of this in your most precious name. Amen. In the, name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are in Luke chapter, hey, Luke chapter 24, verse 46 is where we are. This is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday. And it is Ascension of the Lord's Sunday, um, this Sunday that we celebrate. So uh, you may, if you go to... Um, Mass elsewhere, they may be reading the gospel for the seventh Sunday of Easter because technically Ascension is always celebrated on a Thursday, traditionally. But in our diocese, it's moved to the following Sunday. So if you happen to see any difference, if you go to Mass outside of the diocese or you, you know, re listen to any podcasts or watch Mass anywhere else, it might be a slightly different reading. But for us, Luke chapter 24, verse 46 is where we are beginning our gospel for this Ascension Sunday. So what we're going to do is what we always do. We're going to read through this passage twice. The first time through, I just want to get a picture of what is, is happening here. So paint the scene in your mind as if you've never heard this story before. Pretend that you have no previous image of this and you uh, are just hearing this for the very first time, painting a picture in your head. Uh, so this is after Jesus has risen from the dead uh, in the Gospel of Luke. He uh, appears to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they go back and report this to the disciples, and then Jesus has this appearance to them and um, finishes this appearance later on with him ascending into heaven. So that's what we're reading here. So we're going to begin partway through this encounter uh, at verse 46. It says, and he said to them, but on Sunday you'll hear, and Jesus said to his disciples. So we'll start in verse 46 through the end of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus said to them, thus it is written. That the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, raised his hands, and blessed them. As he blessed them, he parted from them and was taken up to heaven. They did him homage and then returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to read this now a second time. The second time through, I invite you now to listen and try and hang on just the words. You can pay attention to that image you formed, but we really want to see through what word or phrase is the Lord speaking to you individually. So something may stand out for any, you know, some random reason. It could have nothing to do with the passage, but it reminds you of 
a memory or of a thought or just spark something in your mind, pay attention to those things that stand out and begin to reflect on them. Why is this standing out? What is the Lord trying to say to me specifically? So second time through, Luke 24, verse 46. And Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, raised his hands, and blessed them. As he blessed them, he parted from them and was taken up to heaven. They did him homage and then returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple praising God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to look at those things that stood out to you, the things that resonated with you and reflect on them see why they stood out, or any questions that this reading sparks within you. Uh, if you're listening or watching on Zoom, feel free to uh, share any of that or asking those questions in the chat, or if you're doing this on YouTube later, feel free to leave that in the comments. But for those of us here, I invite you to just take a few, uh, like five or ten minutes, to share with those at your table uh, what stood out to you and why you think it did, or any questions that kind of come up as you were reading this. So take the next five or ten minutes to do that with one another, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group. All right. I'd love to hear some of the discussions, some of the things that stood out, some questions that you have about this uh, reading for this upcoming Sunday. Yes. Yes, yeah, so the questions about Bethany. What's the significance of the city, Bethany? Bethany's a name, so it always sounds like we're talking about some lady named Bethany. Um, but, yeah, yeah. But uh, Bethany is uh, uh, two miles east of Jerusalem, so it's not far. And uh, if you're looking at a map of Jerusalem, or if you've been there, uh, if you go east of Jerusalem, there's the, uh, the Mount of Olives, Mount Olivet, and that's where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And right on the east bank of the, of, uh, the Mount of Olives is the city of Bethany, or the town of Bethany. And that was the... Um, when, whenever Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, that's usually where he would stay because it was the place where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived, uh, who were clearly friends, people he loved, people he saw, um, who he mourned the death of Lazarus before he brought him you know, back to life. Um, and so that was a common place for him to go. Um, I think a significant question, too, is why, why leave the city just to then go right back? You know, like, why does he lead them out of Jerusalem? for this like moment and then to go right back. I mean, I guess part of it is maybe some privacy and for it to be like clear that the apostles are meant to be the ones who witness his ascension, which just seems kind of funny to just like go two miles and then they go right back, you know, for just this one event. But it shows that there's some intentionality and significance there. So, but that's the significance of the town of Bethany. Yeah. Yeah, Matt. Yeah. There's not a lot of stuff you should do. There's like we should focus. I remember we talked about this. Like you should focus on like the most nuclear part of your life first, like maybe your family. And then yeah. once you kind of address that, then you need the grace of God. He will empower you to reach out to more people. So like when you're saying, oh, maybe walk up to that thing. He's like, all right, don't go past this line until you mm. feel like you're. I don't know. Just outreach to these people, and then obviously. Christianity spread around the world. Yeah. So just like in our lives, kind of keep that as like a archetype of how we should form our ministry. Like, don't, you know, we change the world. Like, if you're going to change the world, you got to start somewhere you're at. Yeah. That's what Mother Teresa said. She said, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's exactly the mission that, that um, happens in Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he, said, he says, you will be my witnesses. 
and uh, all throughout Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he gives them this kind of sequential stage of mission, starting in Jerusalem, through the chosen people, and then through Judea, which is the southern kingdom of Israel, which stayed intact. It, it wasn't part of the, tw the ten lost tribes of Israel. So the nation of Israel. And then Samaria, which was like their closest kind of foreign neighbor and enemy. And then the ends of the, ends of the earth, which is all Gentiles. Samar Samaritans were still, they were considered um, like uh, kind of cultural enemies of Jews. But uh, historically, they were Jewish people who had intermarried with the, the native tribes and the kind of the pagan tribes of the area, and they became a different cultural group. So there's still some kind of remnant of Judaism among them. Um, so he, Jesus does give that kind of sequential mission. It's a good model for us. You know, we can have this desire, like, oh, I want to change the world, but, like, there's stuff that we're supposed to do, like, you know, like, oh, I want to go and, like, save people, but we, like, can't even make our bed or, like, do our homework. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, like, let's focus on those things first. And then be faithful, and just as in the parable of the talents, like because you've been faithful in small matters, I will give you great responsibilities. Come share in your master's joy. Like that's the whole lesson of that parable, is if you can be faithful in these small things, then when the big things come, it's easier to say yes. Yeah. Question, sir, question? I don't know why, but this thing is bothering me. It says uh, that Jesus said that he's going to be in the grave for three days, uh -huh. three nights, mm -hmm. but... To me, it doesn't make sense because he raises on Sunday, mm -hmm. but that's not three days, not full three days. Yes. So I'm confused about it, you know? Yes. Yeah, part of that is that a new day in Judaism starts at sunset. Uh, and so one day that we might count as one day actually might be two, depending on when it happens. And then um, sometimes it's written after three days, but it's usually written as on the third day. So if the first day is the day that he dies, Second day, third day is Sunday. So there's different ways in, in, to understand that. But if we look at it in like a 24-hour, our way of, of a day, it doesn't always line up. But if the, you go by the Hebrew calendar and the way that they measure days, then it does measure up. Yeah, yeah, great question. Yeah. You know, we just got done with John mm -hmm. uh, for a couple of weeks, and he's, he, he actually names the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And he says Holy Spirit. He mm -hmm. says advocate. But does Luke do that? Um, not as explicitly as in John. Yeah. Um, I mean, he does predict his passion three times. And I'm trying to remember if any of these says that he'll be raised. Um, that's the second one. Maybe 49 is. Verse 49 is insinuating it, you know? Yeah. Because um, my note, my kind of cross-reference is the, the mention from John where he actually explicitly says there um, in the Gospel of John that um, he's going to send the Redeemer, uh, the Advocate, to them. But I don't, I don't recall a specific place where that's explicitly promised in, uh, in Luke. Um, except in the beginning of Luke, I believe there is mention of, like, um, one is coming after me who will baptize you with water. And, or I baptize you with water, John the Baptist says this, um, but one is coming who will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. My backup question, is the Holy Spirit ever foreshadowed or mentioned in the Psalm, I mean, in the Old Testament? Yeah, we have the phrase Holy Spirit, I think four or five times in the Old Testament. Um, I don't have them earmarked. I think one is Psalm 61. Let's see. Pressure. No, it's not. Um, yeah. No, uh, but yes, yes, there is. Several places. One in Isaiah, one in the Psalms, a couple in the Book of Wisdom, uh, in later Greek books. And then there's a reference, there's some references to it in Genesis, the one who wrestles with Jacob in, in Genesis when he has the dream at Bethel. Um, that's believed to be the Holy Spirit. Um, but the actual phrase, the words Holy Spirit, do appear in the Old Testament uh, three or four times. Yeah. So just as like in the Old Testament, God the Father is explicitly uh, interacting with people, and the Messiah is foreshadowed. In the same way in the New Testament, God the Son is now interacting with people, and the Holy Spirit is foreshadowed and becoming to be understood. And now in our age, post-Scripture, the age of the church, now the Holy Spirit is the one who is interacting with us most directly and re-revealing 
the nature of the Father, the nature of the Son, the nature of the Holy Spirit. So it becomes this kind of cycle. But um, there isn't a full understanding of the Trinity, at least explicitly spelled out theology until the fourth century when you have the Council of Nicaea and then the following councils of like Constantinople and things like that to really identify what's the nature of Jesus, what's the nature of the Holy Spirit, things like that. Yeah. Great. Like verse 49, the imagery. And behold, I am setting the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Mm-hmm. I like that clothed mm-hmm. with the power from on high. It seems like all encompassing, all enclosing. Yeah. Not just, not just you know, the tongues of fire on top or whatever, mm-hmm. but they're surrounded, like almost like consumed. Yeah. With the power from on high. Yeah. And think about the the comparison here, like. Jesus is completing his mission to reconcile us to him, undoing what was done in the Garden of Eden. And if you remember in the Garden of Eden, when sin enters the world, what do Adam and Eve notice? That they're naked, and so they create clothes. But it's not out of power, it's out of shame. It's out of a sense of hiding, of brokenness. And now, when Jesus comes and redeems that, the clothing that happens is a a reconciled sense of clothing, one that is being clothed with power, not a sense of, oh, I need to hide, I need to protect, but I have this power empowered in the Holy Spirit. This also points to the the section of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. You know, um, uh, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword that is the Spirit, you know, um, that kind of language, clothing, putting on the armor of God for battle, um, kind of redeems that type of... um, language that's used in, in, in Genesis at the fall. There's another um, allusion here to the Old Testament that um, I was reminded of it when we were talking about Bethany in verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. And I brought up the question, like, why would he, why would he leave and just go two miles and then send them right back? And the, the phrase there, led them out, uh, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, there's this word that's the same word that's used here, exagion in Greek, that's used for the exodus when the people, uh, the Hebrew people are, are led out of Egypt from slavery and into the desert. And so there's an image of these people who've been enslaved by sin, separated from God. God chooses them, leads them out of enslavement into the desert for 40 days. And here we have the completion of an image where Jesus on the cross frees the people from sin and suffering and has walked with them for 40 days. And now he leads them out in this almost kind of spiritual exodus to remind them, like, you are going away from the way things were. So even though they leave Jerusalem and they go back, when they come back to Jerusalem, they are different. And when they leave Jerusalem and they return, they are coming back to a different Jerusalem because it now has this mission mindset that this is where we're supposed to start eyewitnessing this mission of Jesus Christ. This is no longer the center of Judaism and the temple for us. It's now the center of our mission territory. So it may seem kind of random that they would leave and come back, but there's this definitive change there in the language that's used, that they're being led out of an old way of life and being brought back into Jerusalem to begin a new way. So very similar to the Old Testament Exodus. Yeah, so I know you're saying, as far as like the significance of them being like taken out, mm-hmm. is there like a particular significance with it being Bethany, like specifically like that city that he went that far? You know, I don't know. I think it was just a place where he he knew people and that he frequented, and it was away from the attention of the Pharisees and things like that. It's probably quieter. Um, it was on a mount. I mean, the temple's on a mount as well, but it was on the Mount of Olives, like on the eastern slope, like I said, and um, things like the Transfiguration. Ten Commandments, uh, Elijah encountering God and the Whisper all happen on these mountains, these kind of these mountain moments, mountaintop moments. So it might have been for that as well. Yeah. So if I could add to that, so isn't the second letter of the Jewish alphabet that, mm-hmm. which is, I believe, a house, is it like the definition? Bethany's house, yes, yeah. In which case, Bethany is like, is like, that's like a metaphor for one's home. Uh, it could be, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think if I can decipher what Hani or what Jewish word that would be from. Because like Bet- Betlam, from, uh, from where we get the name Bethlehem, is house of bread. Um, and so there could be some linguistic significance. I don't know. I've never broken down the name of that, that town before. But Bet is house. You are right. Yeah. And 
Yes, yeah, L being God, yeah. Yeah, so Bethany is, yeah, I don't know what that, that means I'd have to look that up. Or if someone is swift on Google, you're welcome to. But um, <laughs> yeah, I view very well as, as house of something. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I don't think that's in the footnote. No, sometimes it is. Yeah, I'll, I'm curious. I'll look that up later. Yeah, we'll report back. Bruce. Uh, preface this uh, question with a brief story. When my wife passed away a few years ago, the neighbor who was of a different Christian uh, denomination let me know a couple of days later that when my wife died, he had the greatest sense that she was experiencing joy. She was a devout Catholic. My question is, going to the last verse of what we're reading, the people went into Jerusalem with great joy. Mm -hmm. I'm an academic person mentally. I don't know much about joy as an emotion. And I'm trying to understand if it's me or if everybody experiences joy in a different way, at a different level, mm. or we experience it and we don't even know we're experiencing it compared to other people or what. But joy is something that's a little slippery for me. I don't shake sure. my arms around it. And I wonder if you can elaborate on what they're talking about. Yeah, um, so joy is one of the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit. Um, and I would, I would say it's not an emotion. That's where sometimes it gets confusing. Happiness is an emotion, and emotions are fleeting. They change with our experiences, right? Happiness doesn't last, you know. Uh, In-N-Out Burger makes me happy. When I finish In-N-Out, I am sad. Burger is gone, you know, in my tummy. You need more In-N-Out to make me more happy, right? Um, sorry, it doesn't make you happy because you work there. But, um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, as an example, any kind of instant gratification experience or even like a positive relationship or experience like that might prolong you know like oh i really love that that conversation i had with that friend last week but 10 years later is that really going to give me the same level of happiness no um so joy is not an emotion it's more of a state of being so you can have joy even in the midst of suffering you can have joy even in the midst of pain so you have to kind of divorce in your mind this idea that joy is always like yes like everything's great and wonderful and happy and beautiful, you know? Like that's what, maybe how a very exuberant uh, extrovert might experience joy. Um, but for, for in terms of the theological quality of joy is a, a place of contentment and deep trust in the Lord no matter what happens. So if the, the instances of life change, joy is not shaken. It's this kind of central foundation of the fact that like God is with me and because God is with me, I'm okay. I'm content. I'm at peace. Like I have joy. doesn't mean it always comes out in a positive, happy emotion, but it's always a positive in the sense that like, no matter what happens, I know God is with me. No matter what happens, I know he's real. I know he's walking with me. I know what he says is true. I know his word is true. And so whatever comes my way, whatever suffering or pain I'm experiencing, I know that he's with me in it. And he's already working to use that to bring about my greatest possible good. So it's more of an understanding, but it's not just an intellectual understanding. You know, it is an understanding that is born out of relationship. You know, so just like me, I, there's a difference between, like, say, when I was dating my wife, okay? Uh, I, I learned a lot of information about her. And some of that information made me happy. My time spent with her can make me happy. Uh, but eventually got to a place where I recognized in our relationship that I could rely on her and that her and I were always going to be her and I no matter what happened to her and I. Like, if we're in a fight, we're in the midst of an argument, like, we're still together. And so we're married now. No matter what happens, we're going to be married. You know, if we have a fight one morning, if we're not physically together in the same place, we're still married. And I have a trust and reliance on the fact that I'm going to be faithful to that covenant and so is she. And out of that comes this sense of joy. But that doesn't mean I'm always happy, you know, with the way things are going in the house or in the marriage or in our communication or things like that. But I'm always joyful, if that helps kind of clear up the difference. So it's a type of deep peace about life and your relationship to God? Is that yes, peace that's anchored in, in trust and a relationship. Yeah. And, and peace, I wouldn't say peace also has that kind of connotation that, like, everything's great. But like when you when you have a trust and a reliance on God, it permeates even when things are not great, because you know God is there and He's dealing with it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. A sense of completeness, a sense of purpose, a sense of fulfillment, all of that stems from joy or is a fruit of joy. Um, yeah, different, far different from happiness. But they can look the same um, if we're not clear on what joy really is. Yes. So circling back to Bethany, mm -hmm. um, I looked it up. It means house of affliction or house of figs. It's also where Lazarus who rose from. The yes, yeah, house of affliction. House of affliction, house of suffering. Uh, could be another way of translating that. Um, so that's interesting because that's where, as Emily just pointed out, that's where Lazarus lived. So he died. He was raised from the dead. Also a place where Jesus spent time. Um, also right there on the Mount of Olives on the other side. And in the Mount of Olives, as I said, was the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, the word Gethsemane means the place of crushing. It's the place where the olive press was for the olive trees. And so there's a deep metaphor there when Jesus prays and he's so overwhelmed with stress and anxiety that he's sweating blood. He's literally experiencing the crushing in the place of crushing. Um, Bethany might have, have that name because of its proximity to the garden, um, but also has that deep symbolic significance of all the affliction Jesus experienced in Jerusalem and that being the place that he often stayed when he was visiting. So great question. Thanks for looking that up, Emily. I appreciate it. Other thoughts, questions, things that stood out to you? Greg? We hear it a lot about go out and preach the gospel to all the nations. Mm -hmm. I think like 2,000 years later, how successful have we been at doing that? One in three, two billion Christians in the world. So, almost there. Getting <laughs> there. 4,000 more years at that rate. You know. <laughs> Just keep keep on keep on keeping on, you know. But yeah, no, you're right. But the frequency with which, or the the amount of people on the planet who have heard the gospel preached to them, whether or not they've responded to it, yeah. is probably far higher than that. Um, it's not everyone. There are still remote peoples, and uh, you know, now in a new age of being in a post-Christian world, there are people who have no concept or idea of the good news of Jesus Christ, or just you know have no idea who he is. You know, um, that may sound very foreign, but in our in our current cultural climate, we're actually pretty close, getting pretty close to what it looked like in the early church. Very vibrant, smaller communities of people who knew the good news versus a very secularized world who had very kind of ideas of pleasure, hedonism, self-seeking kind of ideologies and identity-seeking kind of ideologies uh, that are very averse or or completely ignorant of the message of Jesus Christ. That's very similar to, to where we are now. Yeah. Yeah, I'll kind of on, the, on that note, it's also something that I thought about that, that stuck with me is when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus. Uh, mm -hmm. But um, how his kingdom is not one of the world, but one of the spirit. Mm -hmm. And how I think that even if people, you can look all around, even if people are not necessarily considered themselves as Catholic or Christian, there's still, there's like this passing down of the values and these things that have come from this. So even if somebody may not consider themselves like that, they have been influenced. Actually, sure, I mean, Christianity has like completely reshaped all of Western civilization and society. Like exactly. pretty much everything good that we have in society in some way stems from Christianity. Scientific method, every, pretty much everything we know about science, genetics, you know, all of the foundational principles of that all came from Catholic clerics and Catholic, you know, um, theologians, you know, most of the great original textbooks and studies and treatises on every virtual subject came from people within the church. So, you know, definitely has influenced every sphere of, you know, society. Yeah. Like we were talking about how literally, just talking about like the divine nature of Jesus, he literally got sucked up into the air. Mm -hmm. Just like the fact that like they have to experience that like firsthand. Yeah. Like it just kind of dawned on me, like, the smartest people in the world were literally believers in Christ. Mm -hmm. It's like, if that's not, like, a, you know, testament to, you know, that this is true, it's like, you know, they yeah. literally experienced this, like, firsthand. Yeah. And so, it's like, if they are the smartest people in the world, like, shouldn't we also just look to those people? Yeah. But yeah, I always, like, when I talk to someone that, you know, doesn't believe in the church, I'm like, 
last 2,000 years, like the smartest people in the world, like they came together and tried to understand like, what Jesus was trying to say. So it's like, how can you discount that? Yeah. Yeah. And so many, like, you know, amazing scientists, Gregor Mendel, uh, Copernicus, you know. I mean, there's countless, you can find lists online of like Catholic PhDs and scientists and inventors and things that have reshaped society. Um, but you brought up something um, that I lost. What was it? <laughs> I was just going to say. Smart people. Oh, yes, that Jesus, um, that they witnessed it. You know, think about that. Like they, they didn't actually witness the resurrection happen. They saw Jesus in resurrected form. But they didn't actually witness the moment. You know, they weren't there in the tomb when it happened. So think about the power, almost the confirmation of everything that had happened and recognizing, like, that Jesus actually, finally, they have physical eyewitness proof that he is who he says he is. And that's the significance of this phrase here. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, raised his hands, and he blessed them. He blessed them as he parted from them and was taken up into heaven. And then it says they did him homage. In some translation, it says they worshipped him. That is the only place in the Gospel of Luke that phrase is used. It's the only place where Jesus is worshipped by the disciples. Why? Because they now have tangible, real eyewitness proof that he is divine, that he just went back up. He went home, and they saw it happen. They saw it happen. Only time it's ever happened that someone was able to, by their own power, by their own divinity, allow themselves to be taken up in heaven. There have been people who've been assumed into heaven, but that was not by their own power. That was by the power of God. Jesus is different. Uh, and there have not been a lot of people who have been assumed into heaven, only three that we're aware of. Um, so um, that being just something that would have completely kind of transformed, you know, their, that's what, I think that's why they went back to the temple with great joy. Um, and in fact, in the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, um, Luke, was a, he was a physician. He was a traveling companion of, of St. Paul. And he was a Gentile, uh, or at least partially Gentile, and he converted. And um, he, he says this in the very beginning of his gospel, the person he's writing to, uh, that he says, I too have decided after investigating everything accurately anew to write it down in an orderly sequence for you so that you may realize the certainty of the teachings you have received. And he references earlier, just as those who were eyewitnesses from the beginning. So he's setting forth here that everything that he's going to say is based on eyewitness testimony. Luke was not an apostle. He was not one of the 12. So everything that we experience when we read the Gospel of Luke and Acts of the Apostles, because he wrote them originally as one whole story, Luke and Acts, together, um, was all based on the eyewitness testimony of the apostles and then the, the church that came forth out of them. And as we've talked about before, in order to prove in a court of law that something happened, you need two or more witnesses. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, and the legal claims of witnesses and things like that. And so the fact that there is more than that, there's uh, 11 at this time, uh, and who knows how many other disciples may have been there. It's not exactly that specific. Um, at least I don't believe it is. Um, it just says that he appears to the disciples, not specifically only the 12 in this particular moment. But just that alone, that big of a group of people willing to testify, uh, just to have eyewitness testimony that he did what he said he was going to do, he is who he says he was, would have been unrefutable at that time. Yeah. If you go back before the um, before forty six here, mm -hmm. go back another uh, couple of uh, verses prior to that, um, Jesus is talking about um, uh, everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Then he opened their mind to understanding the scriptures. I thought that happened on Pentecost, but it sounds like there's a couple things happening here. They're op he's opening their mind right now, and on Pentecost, they get the gumption to go out and actually spread the word. Yes. Is that? Yeah. Yeah, so receiving the Holy Spirit doesn't immediately imbue you with any extra knowledge. It imbues you with the ability to understand and the ability to retain or perceive higher knowledge, but they still needed to have that explained to them. And there was this idea that the Messiah was going to be a political figure. He's going to be someone who was going to overthrow the oppressive regime of Rome, that was going to write all of the oppressive rules that had been enacted by the Pharisees, that was going to return to uh, you know, the Davidic kingdom, the kingdom of David, or the prophetic rule of Moses. And there were a lot of different, different messianic prophecies associated with Moses. He says in Deuteronomy 
1815, a prophet like me will come um, after me, someone greater than me. Uh, a lot of prophets about the Messiah coming from the line of David and being in, in you know, uh, someone in the, the throne of, of David. Uh, prophets about, prophecies about Elijah returning, you know, and resurrecting, because Elijah was one of the ones who was assumed into heaven. And so all of these things um, point to the fact that people had this mentality that the Messiah was going to be this very powerful king, prophet, you know, type of figure that was going to rebuild the great kingdom of Israel. And so there was no concept among the popular views that the Messiah was going to suffer and rise from the dead. No one thought that was going to happen, even though it explicitly says it all over the Old Testament. Um, so if we look at like Isaiah 53, for instance, um, verse 4, yet it was our pain that he bore, our sufferings he endured. We thought of him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our sins, crushed for our iniquity. He bore the punishment that makes us whole. By his wounds we were healed. And it goes on. It just basically spells out a bunch of different prophecies or details that happened to Jesus about eight, seven to 800 years later. Seven to 800 years before Jesus, that's written many other prophecies, but the overarching expectation was someone like King David, someone like Moses, who's going to lead us out from the oppressive thumb of Rome, Egypt, whatever the power that was at that time. So everyone kind of looked past all of the other scriptures. And so when Jesus opens up the scriptures, he's pointing out these things and basically saying, like, don't you see now? Now that you experienced it 40 days ago, like, don't you get it? Do you get it now? And then when they see him rise up, and then when the power of the Holy Spirit confirms in them the gifts that they need to understand 10 days later, then they get it. Then they can go out and zealously proclaim the good news because it makes sense now. But for so long, everyone, the stories that they told about the Messiah were all different. That's why no, not a lot of people believed that Jesus was the Messiah. It wasn't because they had bad intentions. In fact, they had good intentions. They were protecting the, the prophecies and the law that they had grown up with. They just couldn't see past them to the rest of the scriptures that explicitly talk about Jesus. There are 353 Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah that Jesus fulfills. Tons. Um, and it took a lot to kind of stubbornly ignore that. But there are a lot of other things in the Old Testament besides those 353 details. So it's a lot of other words that you can focus and hone in on instead. Yeah, Ian. Was, um, was this whole, was the idea of the Messiah resurrecting from the dead, did that almost seem like pagan to, to people who knew the Messiah was coming, but this idea that that would happen? Because I'm just trying to think about, think about my old social study classes about, um, you know, the Egyptians and Ra and spirits and, you know, rising after your death. Oh, like reincarnation, reincarnation and afterlife, things like, like that. Yeah. Were there any people were thinking, like, how could you even say that's so sacrilegious to think that the Messiah would be someone who would just resurrect into life and not be so divine? It's a weird question, but... I, I think it probably would have lent itself to being more believable, but not in the sense that, that Jesus rose. I think there, would have, there was a sense that, like, Jesus was going to resurrect, or the Messiah was going to resurrect us. Um, so, like, in Hosea chapter 6... Verse 2, he will revive us after two days. On the third day, he will raise us up to live in his presence. So this idea that like there is some kind of life after death. Um, Psalm 16, verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let your devout one see the pit. You will show me the path of life. Basically saying that even if I'm down in the Hebrew version of afterlife, the Sheol, you will not abandon me there. You will actually show me new life. So there was these explicit passages in the Old Testament saying that, like, that's not the end. So there was something to be expected after. And you could say, like, reincarnation, resurrection, it was kind of in the, it was in the water. You know, like, a, a lot of people believe that sort of thing. So it wouldn't have been surprising for the Jewish people to have picked up on that. But it's also explicitly in the scripture that there was some kind of resurrection. In fact, the Pharisees believed in resurrection after the dead, after death. They believed in, you know, some kind of eternal life. Uh, the Sadducees didn't. That was their division. That's why the Sadducees were different than the, the Pharisees. Um, they didn't believe in life after death. Uh, so that belief was around. But the idea that the Messiah would die and rise, and that it would be after three days, small details in the Old Testament point to that, but it wasn't the prevailing thought. 
wasn't what people expected to happen. Yeah. Well, what did they do then? I mean, all those passages you're talking about, they just blew it off. Well, so a lot of these passages are in like Isaiah, Psalms, um, some of the later Greek books um, that we only have in Greek that were more close to, I don't know, 400 to 100 years before Jesus. And your average synagogue, uh, your paper was very expensive, copying books was very expensive. Your average synagogue probably only had copies of the Torah. Maybe Isaiah, some of the other major prophets, and maybe some of the Psalms, you know, if you were lucky. Um, so, for, first of all, it may have to do with access. People may not have been able to learn all of this. And um, not everyone was the best student and could retain all of that. And in the Jewish uh, educational system, the Torah was paramount. Memorizing, knowing the 613 laws of Judaism that were in the Torah, the story of the Old Testament, God choosing the Hebrew people, that was the most important thing to know. Everything else was tertiary to that, secondary to that, or it helped reinforce your interpretation of that. And everything kind of came out of the understanding of the Exodus and God choosing a people through Moses, and then God building a kingdom of Hebrew people through King David. And so they knew these stories, but whether they had access to them, excuse me, whether they heard them frequently, especially those smaller passing verses, um, is probably unlikely. It's easy for us because we have a Bible we can look online. I can go on an online concordance and I can say, how many times the Holy Spirit show up in the Old Testament? It'll show me in like three seconds. Whereas they had to be like, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. <laughs> no, no, no. page, Holy Spirit. Oh, there's one. You know, and then how long that took, you know, with all the, you know, so, and that's if you, if you were literate, you know, if you had access to the scroll, etc. So, uh, yeah, I think that was part of the issue as well. So it became a more, you relied on rabbis. And rabbis would teach based on their, what's called their yoke, which was their interpretation of the Torah. So unless you went to synagogue frequently and heard the Torah proclaimed and you could understand it, which most people didn't have the education to do, you had to rely on the interpretation of the rabbi who could interpret it however they wanted based on how they had been taught. There wasn't like we have in Catholicism, which we cherish and are so lucky to have a centralized hierarchy of teaching and a magisterial body that says like this is what the Catholic Church definitively teaches about these particular things. That didn't exist in Judaism. There were, there's great division in Judaism between how to interpret certain things, different schools of rabbinical education. So that was probably an issue as well. That's, uh, these are great questions. Okay, I got another one. Yeah, please. Following along with what you said, the people that were well first with the Torah, mm -hmm. I'm thinking like after Jesus died, do you think whether any that kind of went back to the Torah and went back to the history that they had to see what things he had done or said, but, but they could see in hindsight what you mm. back in history in the, in the past that he had actually done and maybe actually even converted to believing in him. Yeah, I'm sure it's possible. I don't know of anyone in particular. The only person that's coming to mind is, um, I think it's St. Longinus, who is the Roman centurion who pierced the side of Jesus, who's also believed to have said when, when the sky gets dark and the earth starts to shake the moment that Jesus dies, he's the one who says, surely this man was the son of God um, and is able to kind of immediately convert and proclaim that right there on the spot. But he wasn't someone who was versed in Hebrew scriptures. He was a Roman soldier. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm not aware of, of any historical figure in particular, but I'm sure among the church fathers, if you were to read their origin stories, some of them were probably, you know, Pharisees, Jews, um, who just kind of realized, like, oh, you know, you read the Passover, you know, in Exodus chapter 12 through 14, and then you read the, you know, Holy Week and the crucifixion of Jesus, and it's like an exact uh, parallel that Jesus is the new Lamb of God to save us from sins. Someone who's well-versed in that could have been like, wow, like, yeah, of course, you know, but... I don't know how frequent that would have happened, again, because of access, education, literacy, things like that. It would have been more relying on, instead of rabbis now, the preaching of the apostles. And that's how they would have heard it. Yeah? Like in later church teaching or writings, do they talk more about Nicodemus as this figure? Um, I, I think there, there's a gospel of Nicodemus, actually, an apocryphal document, uh, but it wasn't written by him. Um, but there is, I think, extra detail about what happens to him 
I can't I can't recall specific any specific details from it because uh, they might be made up because it was written so much later than when he lived. Um, and I don't recall if Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes anything about him. But I do I do think there are some details we know about his life. I just can't recall where they are written. Um, the last we see him is helping Joseph of Arimathea uh, anoint Jesus's body. Um, but he's not called Saint Nicodemus, at least as far as I know in the church. He might, he might be. I don't know. I've never heard him referred to that way. But he could be a saint, um, one of the early church saints. So that's something I would have to look more into. Yeah. Awesome. We've got a few more minutes. Um, so I just want to point out a couple other things in here uh, that's maybe for us to consider. Um, and I think it's in this, this first section here, when he reveals that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance where the forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all the nations. And I think that line is something that we can really draw out of in our prayer this week. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That word repentance is metanoia. If you've ever heard that phrase, a metanoia, a radical conversion, a 180 degree turn. And I think it's useful for us tonight to really think about, like, when I hear this phrase in verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. I don't just think of the disciples, I think of us. We are witnesses of these things. This truth, this reality of Jesus raising from the dead, of him ascending into heaven, of him being God himself who walked this earth, that's still just as true and life-changing for us as it was for them 2,000 years ago. We are witnesses of these things because God, hopefully, has worked in our life. We've encountered him in such a way that has led us here tonight to want to hear this message, to want to dive into Scripture. And so I think it's an encouragement for you and me to think about, like, what is that story? How has God worked in my life? How have I witnessed him do miraculous things in my life and the lives of others? Why is this true? Why is this good news? And how has that compelled me at moments in my life to make that 180-degree turn from going one direction and then suddenly realizing, no, I want to live my life for the Lord. I want to do this. I want to pursue holiness. I want to become a saint. I want to get to heaven. And how do we share that in a way that's dynamic, that's appealing, that's inspiring, that re uh, results in joy for other people who really need to hear that? I mean, this is our main primary goal and mission of the church. The purpose the church exists is to make disciples. That is why the church exists is to make disciples. And it's not to confirm, it's not to get people to the Eucharist, even though those things are very, very, very important. But you don't need the Eucharist to get to heaven. You don't need to be confirmed to get to heaven. You don't. You need to be baptized. But the church exists to form us, make us into disciples, to give us the nourishment we need through the sacraments to be able to go out and be able to share those stories, share our eyewitness testimony of what God has done in our life, and preach it in such a way that it inspires in others the repentance of sins, to recognize they can be forgiven, to share stories about how we've experienced the forgiveness of God. I mean, do other people know that about you? Do other people know that in your life? You know, if everyone from your boss to your barista found out that you were Catholic tomorrow, would they be like, what? Or would they be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You know? Because we, we can become walking symbols of the church or it can be this kind of secret that we keep close to the vest that we don't really share with anyone. And no one's benefited from that. We are called to be disciples who make more disciples. And that verse really challenges me and really encourages me to think about how am I sharing the eyewitness testimony, the things that God has done in my life with other people, the people I come across. Not just the easy ways where it's like, this is my job, I'm here, like you've all decided to come here tonight, but like, when I'm going about my day, when I'm driving on the road, when I'm at the gym, when I'm running errands, when I'm getting coffee, like do, every, do all those people experience some glimmer of the good news of Jesus Christ coming through me? I learned this today that um, the, the idea of being a person, a human person, the word person comes from the Latin personare, which means sounding through. That in a sense, we experience the deepest reality of being a person a real human person, when we allow God to sound through us in the unique ways that only he can sound through each one of us, the ways that we can share, the ways he's worked in our lives, the ways that we have unique gifts and talents to share with others. So how is God going to sound through you into the lives of others this week? 
Because the ascension of Jesus is a real historical event proven to have happened by eyewitness testimony. It would have worked five times over in a court of law then. It's just as good for us now. We know that this happened, that it resulted in great joy. Does it result in great joy in our lives, and does that overflow into other people's lives to permeate their experience with joy, to inspire repentance, forgiveness, a desire to know more about Jesus? That deep trust and reliance, not to make everyone happy, not to make everyone feel like everything's going to be okay, but to recognize in all the highs and lows of life there is something greater than anything out there that this earth has to offer. And the hunger that you and I experience day in and day out for more, for greater, for better, for greatness, to leave behind a legacy, to find something more, to feel fulfillment, that can only reach its end in Jesus Christ. He proved that he can do it. He proved that he has power over sin, death, over nature, over matter, by ascending into heaven. He has power over everything in your life and in mine, if we but surrender it to him. The same is true for everyone else we encounter. Do they know it? you might be the only vessel through which they can hear that message. So I'm going to challenge myself, and I pray you'll challenge yourself too in the coming week, to really see myself as a vessel, yourself as a vessel, for God to sound through and allow the joy, the reality, the power of his ascension to change lives as it's changed ours. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for this word, for this teaching, for this time together. We thank you for all the ways that you have worked in our lives, continue to work, and that you will work in the future. You are always faithful. Help us to remember. Remember the things that you have done. And help us to share them with joy with others who need to hear them. If heaven and hell are on the line, everyone that we encounter is worth has the dignity and the worth of being able to hear this message. We want them in heaven with us, Lord. So help us to live in such a way to get there and to share your good news in such a way to get as many other people there with us as possible. We pray, God, that as we hear this word proclaimed again, as we reflect on it throughout this week, and especially when we hear it proclaimed this Sunday, that it would challenge us in new ways, that other things would stand out and inspire deeper reflection and study. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless us until we gather again together. We pray all of these things in your most precious name. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.